Good morning. We are excited to be here this morning. It says in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, uh, the Apostle Paul says, uh, I passed on to you what is of most importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. And he said that this is the thing that is the most important. And in similar fashion in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power unto salvation to all who believe. Not social justice, not good works, but the gospel is what saves us. It's God's power unto salvation. So as Gary shared with you, we are missionaries. We are passionate about that message going forth. We understand that the gospel message is the hope of the world and that God has ordained to bring that message to the world through local churches. So we are passionate to take that message and plant churches to go and take it even further. Um, That being said, This morning, I am not here alone. Unlike March, when I traveled here alone, I'm here with my family. My wife, Denise, is here. She's hiding over there by the garage in the shade with our two sons at Anirum and Abishai. And we are grateful to be here with you as uh, as a family. And we've been extremely blessed and felt warm. Uh, A warm welcome from GBC. We thank you so much for your grace, your love, and your hospitality. Thank you, guys. But we're also very privileged to be here this morning on such a special occasion, a first-time thing for your church. Uh, As it says in the book of Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We've already seen rejoicing in this place this morning, and I pray that we were able to rejoice with you on such a special day of celebration of your church. Uh, But I'm also blessed to be a part of this sermon series, Unusable. And as Gary mentioned, today we're going to be talking about Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, for those of you guys uh, who might not know who he is, he was a, a, a man from the, the, uh, Judah who came back and to, after being in exile, came back to the city of Jerusalem and built walls. Um, and in fact, there's a book in the Bible named after him, which we're going to look at this morning. But if we're going to really gain context um, and, and understand just how much Nehemiah was both unusable and also how much God redeemed that and brought him to a place where he could be used, uh, we need to get a little bit more background. And to understand the story of Nehemiah, we need to understand that Nehemiah is pretty much inseparably linked to the book of Ezra. And the reason why this is is because originally Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book. And there's three central figures in these books. Uh, The first figure is a man named Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was the, the, the man who came back and led the first group of exiles after, after King Cyrus issued a decree saying that the exiles could return to the land of Judah. And he brings them back and they rebuild the altar of God to offer up sacrifices. And eventually, they uh, rebuild the temple itself. And Zerubbabel was the grandson of King Jehoiakim of the tribe of Judah. And then about 60 years later, there was another man who came and led some exiles back. He was a man named Ezra. Ezra was uh, a a priest. He was a scribe. He was a reformer. And Ezra uh, was brought back by uh, King uh, uh, Artaxerxes to bring the law, to bring the Torah back and teach it to the people of Jerusalem to reestablish the community of God. And then some years after that is when Nehemiah makes his return to the land of Judah. 
Now, Nehemiah was serving as a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, and he came back and he built the walls of the city around Jerusalem. Now, this was not some small feat, the walls around Jerusalem. In biblical times, walls around a, a city were essential. Keep in mind, when, when enemies would attack, the walls were their, their protection. There was no air raids or, or things of that nature in biblical times. So basically, the stronger your walls were, the stronger the fortifications around the city were, the more protection you had from would-be attackers, would-be conquerors. When we think of walls in biblical times, the story that co comes to mind for most Christians is the story of Jericho where the, the Israelites could not conquer that city until when? Until God brought the walls down, and then they were able to come in and conquer. So Nehemiah rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem was a huge, huge deal. Uh, with that being said, let us look at some of the reasons why Nehemiah was unusable. First and foremost, unlike Zerubbabel, right, he was not from the Davidic line. He was not from royalty. He did not come from prestige. All right, secondly, uh, he was not like Ezra, who was a priest. He was not a ministry man. He was amongst the laity. He was a working man. He was a blue-collar guy. And then thirdly, there's no evidence in Scripture before uh, he brought those people back to uh, the land of Judah that he had any leadership experience. So he was not an experienced leader. So in many ways, Nehemiah was unqualified for the work that God had for him to do. But here we understand and we get a picture of that's how our God works. He often takes those who are unqualified and raises them up and qualifies them for the work that he's called them to do. In other words, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. So let us take a few minutes to look at the ways in which God raised up Nehemiah for the work that he had for him. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. And beginning in verse 2, we're going to look at the, verse three, the first two verses to start off with. It says this. It says, Hanani, Nehemiah's talking here. Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah asks his brothers about what's happening in Jerusalem. He gets this gruesome news that the walls of the city, this fortified protection, are in ruins. And that the people there are under siege. They're in great trouble. And how does Nehemiah respond to this? Or perhaps it's better said, or better to ask, how did God or what did God do in Nehemiah to raise him up for the work that he was going to call him to do? Well, we, we, if we read on in the text in the first part of chapter 1, uh, verse 4, it says this. Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. So we see immediately God begins to do a work inside of Nehemiah's heart. He begins to burden his heart for the people in Jerusalem, for the people in Judah, and the walls that have come down and, and the, the lack of safety that they have. But God doesn't just stop at burdening Nehemiah's heart because the walls in Jerusalem are in ruins and his countrymen are facing some fierce opposition, but God gives him the grace to begin to pray and intercede on behalf of his people. Nehemiah goes on in verse 4 and says, and I continued fasting and praying before God, the God of heaven. 
You see, Nehemiah didn't stay there and, and just worry about his brothers and sisters that were there in Judah under, under that persecution, under that opposition. God gave him a heart of intercession. Nehemiah became an intercessor. He began praying, fasting, and interceding for his people. The third thing God did in Nehemiah, in, in, the, in the second chapter of Nehemiah, which we don't have time to read or go into detail, I wish we did, but we don't this morning, but Nehemiah's at work. He's serving the king and his family drinks, and Nehemiah has this expression of sorrow on his face, and you have to understand that in the king's quarters, in the king's presence, this was a big no-no. You weren't to add burdens to the king's shoulders. Nehemiah was supposed to put on, even if it was a fake smile, he wasn't supposed to add any burden to the king, but his face is so distraught that the king looks at Nehemiah and he asks him, Nehemiah, what is going on with you? What's the issue? And Nehemiah doesn't just share his burden with the king, but he steps up and he asks the king also for... Uh, uh, the right to go and build the walls of Jerusalem again. He asked for a military escort and he asked for the supplies to be given to him from the, the, uh, throughout the province of Judah or, or out the province of uh, um, Persia, sorry, the, king of the, the kingdom of Persia. So the, the third thing that, that, that God did in Nehemiah was he gave him a heart not to be intimidated by where he seemed to be positionally in life. Right, Nehemiah was a blue-collar worker, and he's standing in the presence of the king, and he has this boldness to ask the king for these great things. See, Nehemiah understood that it was God who had given him that burden. It was God that gave him the heart to intercede. It was God that was calling him to go to Jerusalem to build these walls. So with that, he had the boldness to ask the king. He was not intimidated by where he seemed to be positionally. He had the boldness to ask the king for these things because he understood that the God that he serves has the power and the heart, uh, and the power and ability to change the hearts of even kings to do that which he's decreed. The God that we serve is the sovereign ruler of all the universe and he is on the throne at, at all times. It does not matter what's happening in our world politically, economically, God is on the throne, God reigns and he is in control. This is exactly why Nehemiah understood where he was and that meaning that he was not just standing in the presence of King, uh, uh, of king Artaxerxes, but he was standing in the presence of his king of kings and Lord of lords, the God of heaven and earth, who gave him that ability not to be intimidated. The fourth thing was that God gave Nehemiah the grace to trust him in the midst of fierce, fierce opposition. After Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, and they begin rebuilding the walls. In chapter 4, the enemies of Jerusalem find out the, that the holes of the walls are being filled in. And that they become furious. The text says they become furious. And they plot together to attack Jerusalem. And the people of Judah hear this. And they go to Nehemiah and they said, no matter where we turn, our enemies could come at any time. And they were terrified. But Nehemiah responds to them in verse 14 of chapter 4. And he says, and I looked and rose arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah understood that God had given him a task to rebuild the walls and that that was his sovereign will and nothing was going to stop that. So Nehemiah said, we are going to trust the Lord and we are going to march forward and do that which God has called us to do. This is a wonderful trait for Christians to grab hold of. When you know that which is right, it does not matter what opposition you face, stand in the face of opposition and trust the Lord and do that which God has called us and commanded us to do. Amen. Lastly, 
Nehemiah. God moved his heart. There goes my notes. It's probably why, why we shouldn't use notes. Two rocks. Right? Ne Nehemiah. God moved Nehemiah's heart to call others to put their hope and trust in who? The Lord alone. Famously, in chapter 8, after the wall is reconstructed, Ezra, the priests, and Nehemiah, they begin to recite the law, and the people become grieved. They hear the law, they realize how much they've fallen short, and they become grieved. But Nehemiah says to them, famously, in chapter, chapter 8, verse 10, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength, not your performance, not your ability to keep the law, but the fact that God is the covenant keeper. God is the one who was faithful. God is the one who's brought us back here. God is the one who's rebuilt these walls. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Hallelujah. Amen. So we see that there's this ways in which God has redeemed this unusable, unqualified guy, Nehemiah. He's raised him up. He's burdened his heart. He's turned him into an intercessor. He's given him boldness in front of the king. He's given him the grace to trust him in the midst of fierce opposition. And then he's given him the heart to call other people to put their hope and trust in the same God. Now, when we think about Nehemiah, we think about these unusables. It's very common for us as Christians, and rightfully so, to gain inspiration from these people. To look at them and say, man, you know, Nehemiah was a blue-collar worker. I see a lot of myself in Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an inexperienced leader. Man, I have no leadership experience. Man, Nehemiah wasn't somebody from prestige. He wasn't a celebrity. He wasn't a king. Man, I'm a nobody. It's normal for us to do that, but when we look at unusable people, when we look at the heroes of our faith, and we all have them, one of my heroes of the faith is a man named Adoniram Judson, the first American missionary. Wonderful, amazing story of a faithful man that God raised up, so much so that we named our first son Adoniram. Right? My wife, her hero of the faith is her grandmother, looked at, was just a, a model, a servant. But a lot of times, we look to these people and we forget that the reality is, is no one's usable. Why? Because we're being used by who? We're being used of the, by the God of the universe who is holy, who is perfect, who is flawless. And that God can do everything just by speaking a word. But all of us are not like him. We all fall short of the glory, God, glory of God. We've all sinned. We are, there's none of us that are righteous. No, not even one. And even those who we look at and say, man, that person is such a man of God. That woman is such a woman of God. Even those people, even as it says in Isaiah 64, 6, even all their righteous deeds are filthy rags in comparison to the holiness of God Almighty. And you need to understand just the context there. When it says filthy rags, I'm not trying to be overly graphic. It literally is menstrual rags. So compared to the holiness of God, that's what we look like. But here's where we see the counterintuitiveness of God, where God chooses to do his work through sinful, broken people like you and I. God takes imperfect people like you and I to accomplish his perfect will. You and I, brothers and sisters, we would not do that. If we had the ability to do everything perfectly, to just speak it into existence, we would not give that away to people who are just going to screw it all up. That's not how we think, and that's not the way we do things. But God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts, 
than your thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our ways. He works through ways that we cannot fathom, and it's counterintuitive to everything that human beings think or how we think. But we need to go even further than understanding the counterintuitiveness of God. Why? Because even with that, there's still sometimes when we unintentionally give ourselves or those who we're looking looking towards for inspiration the glory that is rightly due to God alone. Let me explain what I mean. As Christians, we are grateful that God in 1517 raised up a man named Martin Luther to recapture the essence of the gospel that can be summarized in two Bible verses that we all know and rightfully love, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that says, For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and this is not by works, it is the gift of God, uh, not by works, lest any man should boast. Brothers and sisters, we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Hallelujah. But a lot of times as Christians, we stop there. We say our justification is by God's grace, but our sanctification, that's us. We do that. It's not he who began the good work in us, sees us through to completion. It's he begins the good work in us, and I see it through to completion. That's not what scripture teaches. And in fact, the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, for by the grace of God, I am what I am. He doesn't just say the grace of God saved me. He says, I am what I am by God's grace. I am what I am by God's grace. And when God's grace hits us and we come in contact with God's grace, it is both transformative and empowering. Paul doesn't just stop there in that verse and say, I am what I am by, the, by God's grace. He goes on and he says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Don't miss that. He said, listen, yeah, I was working hard. I was doing what I was supposed to do, but I recognized that that was not me. It was the grace of God in me, at work in me. Our God is faithful. He does not just bring us to salvation. He completes that work in us through the process called sanctification. My friends, wherever you are in your faith, it is because God's grace is at work in you. Don't look at those who we look to for inspiration with envy. Look at them and say, praise God that my God's doing a work in me as well. I might not be in that same place, but God can bring me there and is bringing me there because he's that good. So when we look to the people and our heroes of faith, when we look to people for inspiration, when we look to the unusables like Nehemiah, let us remember the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Paul recognized that People were looking to him. He said, imitate me. It's okay. You can look at me. I understand. He understood how God was using me. He said, imitate me, but understand that where I'm looking. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, when we look at people like Nehemiah in Scripture, we need to understand that everything that God was doing in him, and not just that, but Nehemiah himself was looking towards one greater than him. Nehemiah was looking towards the one to come. He was looking towards Christ. And everything God did in Nehemiah pointed to one that was greater than Nehemiah. You see, God, first thing he did in Nehemiah was burden his heart for the people. But that points to one who was 
burdened even greater for his people. It points to the burden that the Lord Jesus Christ had for his people. How much was Jesus Christ burdened? It says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. Jesus said in Luke 19, 10, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus was so burdened that he didn't just come to build up walls. He came to die in the place of his people. You see, God didn't just burden Nehemiah, Nehemiah started, he then raised him up to be what? An intercessor for his people. But Nehemiah as an intercessor points to a greater intercessor. Amen. Jesus incarnate in John chapter 17 famously intercedes for his church. But you see, Jesus didn't stop there. In Romans chapter 8:34, it says that the risen glorified Christ is interceding for us now. It says Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's present tense, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus is interceding for us right now. He is the great intercessor. We, we, we saw that God moved Nehemiah to not be intimidated by where he appeared to be positionally in life. Nehemiah was a, a guy serving drinks, but he was not intimidated by that because he understood who his God was. You see, Jesus Christ, when he was in the flesh, he was a lowly carpenter turned rabbi. And in the face of death, when he stood before the Roman Empire, the greatest empire on earth, he stood before Pontius Pilate right after the Jews accused him of saying that he was the son of God. Pilate turns to him and says in John 19, verse 9 through 11, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. See, humanly speaking, Jesus didn't look like much, but he was not intimidated by where he appeared to be positionally. He knew who he was. He was the God of the universe. He knew that he was there to accomplish his father's will and that Pilate was only being able to do what he could do because God, the sovereign king, the same sovereign king that was over the, the, the rule in the Persian empire was and, and rule over the Roman empire. And his will was going to be done. So Jesus was not intimidated. All right? And then Nehemiah was raised up how? What? To trust God in the midst of fierce opposition. There's so many examples in the gospel of those who oppose Jesus. We don't have time to go into all of them or even more than one of them. But for, for, for time's sake, I'll just give you one. Right? In Mark chapter 3, there's this man who comes to Jesus on the Sabbath. His hands withered. And he comes to Jesus, Sabbath laws were in place, and they were saying, you can't do anything on the Sabbath. Anything, if you break, if you violate the Sabbath, then you can be condemned to death. Jesus turns to them in Mark chapter 3, verses 4 and 6, and it says, And he said to them, Is it lawful to kill on the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to them, or said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched, out, stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. See, Jesus understood, I'm here to bring restoration. 
This is God's will. This is the time. The, the time has been fulfilled. I'm beginning to usher in heaven to earth, and I'm going to do that which my Lord and, and my God has called me to do. Amen. He heals this man knowing that those who were looking for a, a, a reason to kill him were right there. He was not intimidated and had the ability to trust God in the midst of that opposition. And then lastly, Nehemiah did what? Called others by the grace of God to hope and trust in God alone. Well, that was pointing to the one that, was, that came, Jesus. And he called people to hope and trust in him and in him alone. He said in Mark chapter 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30, he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then he said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So you see, Nehemiah, all the things God did in him to raise him up, to make him usable, was pointing to the only one that was truly usable, Jesus Christ, the Holy One, who was tempted in every way as we were, but was without sin, who came not to condemn the world, but to save the world who came to offer himself up as a sacrifice for his people. He died in the place of his sheep, the great shepherd laying down his life. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it's filled with all of these unusables. It's filled with all people of history past in the Old Testament who looked forward to the coming of Christ. And there's many examples of people we know in there, Abraham, Moses, so many different people, like Nehemiah, like whatever hero of the faith you have. But after Hebrews 11 is over, the writer goes on and starts chapter 12, and he says this, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses, the unusables, the people of faith, what does he say? Since we have this large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. See, the story of Nehemiah is not for us to fix our eyes on Nehemiah. The story of any unusable isn't to fix our eyes on them. It's to see what their lives point to, or better said, who their lives point to. All of those heroes of the faith, all of those unusables in, in uh, Hebrews 11 points to the fulfillment, Jesus Christ. He is the one we are to fix our eyes on, ladies and gentlemen. He's not just the author of, his faith, of our faith, he is the perfecter. Amen. You're not the perfecter. I'm not, I'm not the perfecter. It is by God's grace that we are what we are. Jesus Christ is perfecting us. Hallelujah. Amen. So in conclusion, this morning, if you have not yet fixed your eyes on Jesus, if you have not gazed upon the beauty of the Lord like David did in Psalm 27, verse 4, who understood that by looking upon Jesus, that would cover all of his sins, including murder, including adultery, if you have not gazed upon the beauty of the Lord and understood that Jesus Christ came and died on a cross, he was arrested and tried as a criminal, he was nailed to a cross, and when he was on that cross, there was a moment where God took all of his in holy, righteous uh, justice and poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. This is why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for though he knew no sin, meaning, or he took the one who knew no sin, meaning Jesus Christ, the Son, he made him to be sin, 
God the Father took God the Son, made him to be sin, so that why? So that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Jesus Christ took on our sin. He took on the wrath of God. He was crucified for our sins so that you might have the hope of eternal life. If you're in this place and you are not a true follower of Jesus, if you have not repented of your sins, if repented of your self-righteousness, which simply means to have a change of heart, a change of mind, and gazed upon the beauty of the Lord by putting your faith in him, I invite you to do that this morning. I know we're here to celebrate a picnic, and we're going to do that, but this is a matter of eternity, ladies and gentlemen. There's no guarantee that you have tomorrow. There's no guarantee you have the rest of today. Isaiah says to seek him while he may be found. After, after you die, it says in Hebrews 9, 27, that it's been appointed unto man to die once, and after this you face the judgment. God will judge you. The question is, is when he looks at you at the judgment, will he see you and your sins or will he see the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Because when you come to him in faith, you will have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed on you. That doesn't mean you become perfect. It means that you are declared righteous. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness that Jesus Christ won for you. See, Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He lived for our righteousness. The life that we could never live, that life is given to us in, by faith and through grace alone. But if you are in the faith this morning, I encourage you to stop looking to your inspiration or your heroes of the faith in the wrong way if you're doing that. Look to them as they look to Christ. Imitate them as they imitate Christ. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. God has mighty things for his church to do. Maybe you won't be going to build the walls of Jerusalem. Maybe you might have to go down to some area of New London or area of Groton where you might not want to go and God might say, I'm going to raise you up, even though you don't think you can do it, to be a mighty vessel for my kingdom. Amen. That happens when we fix our eyes upon Jesus. Make sure you're doing that. Make sure you're not just looking to these unusables and saying, I want to be like Nehemiah. I want to be like uh, the Peter or whoever it is that you're thinking of. Say, I am looking to them as they look to Christ. Amen? Amen. Thank you guys so much for having us here. I'm going to pray. And then, and then um, Zach's going to come. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity to bring for your forth your word. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I pray, Lord God, that you would just have your way in this place. I pray for those who might not know you, Lord God, that your grace would be bestowed upon them, that they might have their eyes opened, that the scales would fall down, Lord God, and they would see you in all your beauty, Lord God. I pray for the souls in this place who may be playing the game of church, who, who really don't know you, Lord God, that I pray that you may quicken them to salvation as well. But for those who are truly in the faith, Lord God, I pray that this was a reminder to look towards you, Lord God. Give us the grace to do that. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.